You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, I've got to say, if verses were meals, bear with me, this one would be a seven-day banquet. So much to it that if I was to try, and I, and I would only be trying, not succeeding, to portray to you every single thing that these verses have, I just wouldn't have the time. If you'll permit me though, what I'd love to do is cherry pick some prime cuts from the banquet for you and just deliver them over the next 45 minutes. Um, maybe less. Um, things that are really on my heart and hopefully you will find beneficial. If you'll permit me that then, I will uh, begin. Firstly, I want to sort of take a very brief look at the audience for this sermon and where Luke places it, because those two things, I think, tell us really that it it was intended to be an instructional verse to the apostles and to the disciples. This was to be how they should live and what to expect as disciples of Christ. As Luke listed at the beginning, you've got three groups of people present in the crowd. There are the newly appointed 12 apostles. There's a great crowd of disciples, a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem and the coast of Tyre and Sidon, which is Luke's way of saying there's a big crowd of Jews and Gentiles, many of whom would have come a long way to hear Jesus speak. To this crowd and to us sat in the church hearing his words, Jesus' opening gambit to those who would be his followers is that the way of his kingdom is not the way of this world. And if you want to follow him, you can expect hardship and you can expect to be in direct opposition to the world. D.L. Moody, a well-known mid-19th century evangelist and preacher, had this to say, This life is all heaven the worldling has and all the hell that the saint ever sees. If you hold fast to this world and all it has to offer, then that is exactly all you will ever have. Your blessings will begin and end with whatever you can gather together in this short life you have on this world. And you will never see anything of the kingdom. If, however, you seek God's kingdom, then this world won't necessarily be easy for you, but you can be sure of God's present and eternal blessing which is worth infinitely more than anything else this world has to offer. Bearing in mind what's at stake then, I want to elaborate as best I can in the short time that I have on what the four blessings and woes actually mean and how they can apply to each one of us. Fundamentally though, if you remember nothing else from this sermon, I want you to remember this. Each blessing comes from a place of humility and dependence on God. And each of the woes which are direct opposites of the blessings, come from a place of arrogance and selfishness. If that's the headline, though, blessings equal humility, woes equal arrogance, I want to take you into the content now by looking at each blessing coupled up with the opposite woe. On the face of it, you could simply read them and be left thinking, it's good to be poor, it's good to be hungry, it's good to weep, and it's good to be persecuted. And you would be right in some ways, but missing out in others. In contrast to Matthew's more spiritual account of the Beatitudes, of which this is a very similar account, 
The Sermon on the Plain is the start of, the blessings and woes are the start of what we call the Sermon on the Plain, and the Beatitudes were at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. There are direct parallels between the two. So Luke is trying to be much more matter-of-fact, much more practical. He wants to highlight the real-life challenges and requirements of being a disciple of Christ as much as he does the spiritual side. So then, starting from the top, we begin with these two. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Contrasted with, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. You might be asking yourself, does this really mean that it is good to be poor and it is bad to be rich? Is there really anything wrong with having money? Well, you'd be pleased to know the answer is yes and no. <laughs> Both now and at the time Jesus delivered this sermon, the, the world would have us believe that being rich is one of the pinnacles of human achievement and perhaps even a sign of God's blessing. But Jesus says plainly that is not the case. Why does he say that? Because poverty leads so much easier to dependence on God than being wealthy. Jesus says it himself when he talks about it being easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who are wealthy feel insulated by their wealth. Their needs don't seem to be as acute as those of the poor. And they are often less, des- they are often less desperate to change. The rich tend to be self-satisfied. The poor, on the other hand, are forced to trust in God since they have no wealth to trust in to tide them over. Also, time and time again, we are reminded of our need to store up riches in heaven rather than riches on this earth. If you have no riches on earth, then how much easier is it for you to look to the riches of heaven? Riches that come from looking after the poor, from feeding the hungry, from sharing the gospel of Christ, all the things that don't increase your bank balance or gain you any earthly status. So yes, for those reasons, it is better to be poor than to be rich. You are blessed just by being poor. Jesus clearly isn't just talking about the wealth of this world, though. And it's this point which probably answers the question of whether there is a blanket curse for anyone who is rich. Throughout the Psalms, David claimed to be poor and needy, but he was rich and famous. So you can almost certainly be poor before God whilst also being rich in this world. There are also enough seemingly wealthy Christians mentioned, albeit just a handful, in the New Testament to make the case that wealth is not entirely to be shunned. Take, for instance, Joseph of, Joseph of Aram, Aram, say it again, Arimathea, who bought the tomb that Jesus was laid in, the Ethiopian eunuch who met Philip on the road to Gaza. What unifies these rich people, though, was a humility to recognise that for all their wealth and their power, they still needed God. David knew that when nations were coming against him and wanted him dead, his wealth could not protect him. He couldn't build a wall of gold, sort of Donald Trump-esque wall, to protect him from the people that wanted to kill him. Only God could protect him from that. And in that sense, he was poor. They also recognised that their wealth was not their own. Without hesitation, they were willing to give it over to the poor and use it to further God's kingdom. So then, if you must be rich, and I would say that many of us in this church are, relatively speaking, of course, then use that wealth for God 
And don't be afraid to be poor for God either. I'll say that last bit again. Don't be afraid to be poor for God. Don't cling on to your wealth. If he calls you to give it away, whether that's for missionary work or for any other reason, then know that he will bless you for that. Set your sights on a heavenly treasure, not on an earthly wealth. Next up then, Jesus turns his attention to being hungry, saying, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Contrasted with, woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Now it's clear that hunger and poverty have a lot in common. If you're poor, it's somewhat inevitable that you'll be hungry. And if you're rich, it's probably by choice or by exception that you have ever been hungry. For many of those hearing Jesus' word firsthand, hunger would have been a very present reality. And for that reason, it was probably important for them to simply hear that when they find themselves hungry, and they will, and they did, God can sustain them, just as he did the Israelites in the wilderness. For most of us in this church, though, I believe the challenge of hunger is probably more spiritual than practical. How many of you in here are sitting hungry now? Very few, I would imagine. Last week, we'd have had an agape meal to feed you after church as well. Hunger is not a real reality for us that often. C.S. Lewis sums this up beautifully in Mere Christianity when he says this on hunger. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy, echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Focus then on remaining hungry for the things that are not of this earth. Be hungry to know God better. Be hungry to read your Bible. Be hungry to be in church. All of these things will satisfy your eternal hunger. Don't let anything this world has quench your appetite. Because if you're full and satisfied by those things, you will be well fed and forget your need for God. Blessed then are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Contrasted with, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. I believe there are two parts to this particular blessing and woe that we should pay particular attention to. Firstly, I believe it is a direct address and a direct promise to all those who are currently going through hardship and are looking to the Lord for comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5 says this, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. 
Sadness and mourning can be turned to a blessing if we submit it to Jesus. Horatio Spalford, who wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul, one of my favourites, in, when did he write it? In the late, well, mid, mid-1800s, I believe. We still sing it today. When writing that song, his business was in ruins. That was the least of the bad things that happened to him. His children had died, one in a fire and one in a shipwreck. And yet, he wrote this song. I'll only give you the first verse, because it would be here a long time otherwise. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. He could write that because in spite of the great suffering he had been through, he knew the comfort of God and he wanted to ensure that for hundreds of years to come, people would sing that song and take joy from the comfort of God. We can comfort others with our own sadness because God has comforted us first. Be assured that he will comfort you through those worst of times and be prepared to share the testimony of that when he comforts you. That song is hundreds of years old and yet it still inspires today. Inspire other people. Secondly, I believe it is a call to be more compassionate. Jesus wept for the death of Lazarus. He wept for Jerusalem, knowing the sin they would commit by killing him. And there wasn't a day go by when he didn't show compassion for the lost and the broken. Simply walking down the street, he would be constantly met with compassion. He would see someone sat there blind and want to heal them. And he did heal them. We should feel that same way. We should share Jesus' compassion and weep with God more often, not because of our own plight, although it may sometimes be appropriate to weep for ourselves, but also for the plight of others. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. The arrogant and godless man laughs when he should be weeping because his one regard is for himself and the things that immediately impact on him. He would walk down the street, and if it didn't impact on him, he would not care. As a son or daughter of Christ, our gaze should be wider than that. Our hearts should be broken for every lost soul or every broken person that we meet. We should be praying with them and for them with tears in our eyes, because we know that's what Jesus would have done. If we can do that, I believe we will abound in blessing both in this life and in the next, because we will share in the joy when Jesus fixes what is broken, when he turns around an impossible situation, when another soul is saved. So church, my commendation to you is weep more with others. I stand here convicted of that. I'm not an emotional person. You know, Andy, I, I suspect yeah, he's blessed by weeping every day. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am not. I need my heart to be broken for people, by God, not by things that immediately confront me. Because on my own, I would walk down the street and ignore those things in front of me. But God can break our hearts for things that break his heart. So be prepared for that, church. Seek it out. Lastly, then. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, 
because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Contrasted with, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated false prophets. Now, as with any of the other blessings or woes, I could preach on this for a number of weeks and still not touch the side of it. I don't have time to go into that much detail, so I want to keep this simple. If you're doing as Jesus instructs, if you're evangelising, if you're living out your faith publicly, if you're not hiding away from the difficult and countercultural teachings of Christ, then you will face persecution. People will hate you, exclude you, and call you evil. It's just that simple. We should expect it. Jesus says it's going to happen. He warned the disciples at the earliest possible opportunity so they knew what they were getting into. He's warning us now at the earliest possible opportunity so we know what we're getting ourselves into. But as followers of Jesus, we do not rejoice in suffering because we enjoy pain, but because Jesus is so worthy in our eyes and hearts that we delight in being identified with him, whatever the costs. Romans goes on further than this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you're not doing those things, and you're finding yourself living a pretty comfortable life, I would urge you, I would urge myself to get out of your comfort zone and be bold for the sake of Christ. Share the gospel with a neighbour. Invite that person along to the next men's or ladies' breakfast. Anything. Just don't get caught sitting on the fence, afraid of persecution that comes with being a disciple of Christ. As I said at the beginning, Jesus' kingdom is not like this world. In this world... He does not promise riches, a full stomach, protection from weeping or sadness or to be liked by everyone and free from persecution. In fact, the more closely you follow Jesus into the mission field, into evangelism, into God's upside down kingdom, the more likely you are to find those things. But four times here, you see Jesus promising blessings for all those who find themselves in difficult and unworldly situations. Be humble before God then. Pray for your daily bread and pray for God's kingdom to come. Because the trappings of this world, like money and food and status, have no eternal value for you. Be bold for the kingdom. Realise what it costs. Go out there and do it anyway, because God is worth it all. Church, I have nothing more to bring to you than that. I want to end it on that. So be encouraged, be challenged, be bold, be active. All for God. Amen. Amen.